Please turn with me to John chapter 11 in your Bible. John 11, as we continue to worship. As you turn there, I want to just on behalf of the staff pastors express our gratitude uh, for the bivocational lay elders at our church. Um, We were very humbled by them leading the congregation to express their gratitude for us, but we don't do this alone. Uh, They do this with us, and we're grateful for them. And I'm especially grateful to have one of our newest elders back in service with us today, Rob Clark. post-heart surgery, we haven't even had time to install you yet as an elder, but I'm so glad you're here. And what a blessing that, I know that's one of your favorite songs that we just sung too, not planned, um, but glad it worked out that way. John chapter 11, we're going to be finishing the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, which technically takes place from verse 17 all the way through to 44. What we looked at last week, verses 1 through 16, it serves as like a preamble, an introduction to the main narrative, the main story. And I think it actually would be best to let this story, this narrative, play out throughout the sermon as opposed to me reading it all at once at the beginning. But we would still be served to begin our time in God's Word by looking at the text itself, particularly a couple of verses from last week, in which Jesus is disclosing the reason for His delay. He delayed, He allowed death, and He tells them in two different ways why He would allow this to happen. And we'll allow that to bring us into this particular study and text. So I would have you look with me. Uh, first, at John chapter 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That was the first reason He was going to delay, that God would be glorified. And another complementary reason uh, He mentions uh, down in verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. I think sometimes we're so familiar with the hope that we enjoy in Jesus and His resurrection power that we forget about it. Like we don't remember what it's like to not have it. So many good gifts are that way. Maybe the hurricane reminded you of the blessings of just electricity and running water. I want to begin this morning by helping you understand and appreciate the unique hope that you enjoy on account of Jesus' power over death by sharing with you a true story rooted in the history of just A decade ago, a little more. Maybe you remember in 2011 there was a tsunami in Japan uh, that eventually would take the lives of 20,000 people in one fell swoop. You thought the storm surge here was bad. We're talking more people dying in that event than Hurricane Katrina and 9-11 together. It was absolutely devastating. And the focal point of all the devastation was this one uh, little town overlooking the Pacific Ocean, of course, called Atsuchi. Just a a mere week or so before the tsunami had hit, uh, one man in particular had uh, just lost his cousin and he was grieving that loss. And he decided that he wanted some way of coping with that grief so he would buy a telephone booth, one of those British-style telephone booths, paint it white, and then place it 
uh, at the edge of his garden, which would be located on a cliff that overlooked the Pacific Ocean. In it, he had a simple black rotary telephone, uh, but the wire ran nowhere. Uh, in fact, uh, that was the whole point. Uh, he called it Kaze no Denwa, which is just simply meant the wind telephone. Well, post-tsunami, this particular little memorial all of a sudden became flooded with visitors and guests because this man built it so that he could feel that he could speak to his beloved cousin. Well, others now were looking for the opportunity, especially in a Buddhist culture, to speak. They, they wanted to be able to communicate with those who had died. And in fact, so many people were making the trek to this particular telephone booth uh, that the local news picked up on it and asked the man if they could actually install a recorder in the telephone to capture the emotion of what was going on in that booth. And so, in just over the course of a week, calls were collected, an extended documentary can be found on YouTube about this particular phone. But I want to share with you just a couple of the recorded conversations. I do this not to pull on your emotions. I do this simply to inform you of what grief is like for the rest of the world. I want to remind you of something. You need to keep in mind, though, something about Japanese culture. They're not direct like we are. They understate things. They don't overstate things. And so in this silent moment, thinking that they are alone, They express their grief. There's one man who walks into the telephone booth. He's wearing a baseball cap. And um, he also brings uh, with him uh, this concern for his mom who was missing, his wife, his daughter, and his mother. They all went missing in the tsunami, so you need that background. He lost everything. He says on the phone after he picks up the receiver, It's so cold. But you're not getting cold, are you? Are Grandma and our daughter Mayuki with you too? Come back soon. Be found soon. Everyone is waiting for you. Okay? In the video, he struggles for a little while. He's holding back the emotion, and then he continues, Just be alive. Somewhere. Anywhere. I'm so lonely. Notice that he never says, I love you directly. He just tries to express his concern. One more. This is all I'll do. This call was from a young father. He's wearing little rectangular black glasses and a long jacket. and He lost his family as well. Both parents. His wife, her name was uh, Miney and their one-year-old son named Issei. The phone dials. He picks it up and says, Dad? Mom? Meanie? Issei? Issei? It's already been five years since the disaster. If this voice reaches you, please listen. Sometimes I don't know what I'm living for. He starts to cry and he crawls out again to his son. Easy, easy, please let me hear you call me Papa. Dad, Mom, Meanie, Easy, without you it's all meaningless. I want to hear your reply, but I, I can't hear anything. And he hangs up the phone and he takes off his glasses and he covers his eyes with his hands And he whispers in Japanese, the phone still picks it up. I'm so sorry I couldn't save you. Friends, this is the great struggle with death faced by billions. (laughs) 
we so glibly and rotely sing about the resurrection power of Jesus as if it is just as taken for granted as the sunrise above us this morning. And yet, it is just the great hope. The hope so, the maybe, the if of the entire world. And even those of us who know the resurrection power of Christ, we know the pain of wanting to reconnect. And so as we wrestle through this struggle of death, this great enemy of us all, we need to hold on to and relish a truer and better narrative. The best they have is a disconnected phone booth. Is there something better? Is there something truer? Is there something more real? The answer comes with glistening clarity in verses 17 to 44 of John 11. What I love about this passage, and what I think you need to understand to really appreciate it, is it is not as much aimed at the intellect as it is the imaginary. What I mean by that is, you need to see it. The earlier verses, like 1 through 16, it's an argument. Here's the reasons why I would delay death. I want you to trust that I'm doing it for my glory, and second, you're good. But what's so surprising about the rest of John 11, verses 17 to 44, is that unlike any of Jesus' other miracles, there's no extended discourse explaining it. That sets it apart. The second thing that makes this particular passage unique to all the other miracles in the book of John is that it's the longest. Typically, John will describe the miracle of Jesus very quickly and then give a lot of explanation on the back end of why it was significant and why it mattered. Here, he just wants you to see everything that was happening. And then it ends all of a sudden at verse 44, almost like the proverbial mic drop. It just transitions to some different people's responses, and John, for the rest of the book in this transitional section, will point back to this event. This will be the thing, by the way, interestingly, ironically, that gets Jesus killed, bringing someone else back to life. And so I want you to be swept up into the imagery of this by sharing with you these these three scenes of Jesus as the realizer of the resurrection. Resurrection hope, He realizes. I love the term realizes. It's one of those words that you use all the time, you never really think about. But realizes means to make real. These Japanese co-sufferers of ours, they were hoping for something, but it wasn't real. It was fabricated. Jesus makes these hopes real. He realizes resurrection hope. And you see it in three scenes, and it's so easy to follow. The first one is a scene of resurrection truth with Martha. The second is resurrection tenderness with Mary. And then you will see resurrection triumph with the many. Let's just follow the story. You can try to take notes, but I think you just would do well to enter into the narrative as it comes. Let's notice the resurrection truth that is put on display with Martha. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, just get the background. Uh, Lazarus is four days dead. John, by the way, good uh, note here on historicity. He's giving us very concrete evidence of something. In fact, it'll be repeated twice that the guy's been dead for four days. You don't want to know something that's really fascinating? Jesus was in Batanea, which was about a four days journey away. 
It shows that he waited till the very moment that Lazarus died to make the trip. He wasn't going to come a bit earlier. Four days is also significant. Many of you may recognize that there was this kind of Jewish superstition that the spirit would actually hang around the body for three days waiting to enter back in. I think in part that tradition came from, you know, that, that odd sense in which, you know, sometimes people seem dead but all of a sudden spring back to life. Just look up on Google, uh, people buried alive on accident who recover. It is a real thing. But in Jewish custom, three days was about the mark because all of a sudden decay would set in. And according to the rabbinical literature, once decay would set in, the body, the spirit, excuse me, would want nothing to do with the body and it would flee away. So Jesus waits just long enough, interestingly, he's just far enough away for them to think that if anything happens to Lazarus, it's not going to be some happenstance that he comes back to life. He's going to put it beyond doubt that he's going to do something great. And notice this as well, he's going back to Bethany, and John is letting us know that it's near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Again, more details. In fact, the Greek phrase is like, it mentions a certain number of stadion, which equals out to be like 1.72 miles. <laughs> I mean, it's very precise in the Greek. And like all of a sudden you're thinking like, why do we give a rip whether or not it was near Jerusalem? Well, do you remember what was going on in Jerusalem? We were just reminded of this in the narrative last week. That's where they're trying to kill him. He got out of there four days away so that he could remain safe. It wasn't time for him to go down yet. It wasn't time for him to die. And now this situation is going to force him to go back into the hornet's nest, if you will. I mean, think about that. 1.72 miles. I did some work this week to figure out what that is. And there is no precise location from here to 1.72, but let me tell you the closest. You go that way to Sam's Club, and you're getting close. You go that way to Gulf Coast High School, and you're getting close. <laughs> That's as far, Jerusalem and Bethany are that far from one That's all it is. Now, I get it. We have cars. They had donkeys, camels, feet, you know, whatever. But it's still not far. I mean, they are literally trying to kill him. They have already like, picked up stones twice to try to, to, to like, get him in the ground. They want him dead. And notice this as well. It says that many Jews of the Jews from Jerusalem came. I mean, it isn't just like uh, he's going to be showing up like, undercover. Like, the Jewish people obviously had close relationships with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they're coming over as well. So it is an awkward situation, to say the least. And so this makes sense. Verse 20, when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She doesn't let him come to the house. She goes out to him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Uh, for those of you who have grown up in church, you've always heard the little uh, stereotypical differences between Mary and Martha. I think that they're really true. Mary is like your typical aggressive older sister. She's focused on the task. She knows how to get stuff done. And you're going to see Martha is just an emotional compulsive mess. I mean, like, it's, a, it's a good both and. They make a great combination. Mary can see ahead on this issue and says, okay, I don't want to cause trouble here. Let me go out and meet Jesus ahead of time. So she went and met him. Mary remained seated in the house, grieving with the company. And Martha said to Jesus, notice this comment, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. First words out of her mouth. You could have stopped this. It's respectful. Lord, she calls him Lord. But you could have prevented this. I mean, she just lets it hang. She doesn't give anything else, you know, right to stir it off with. That's her lead. But it's almost as if she recognizes that that could stand, sound a little too harsh, and so she follows up verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's acknowledging that, hey, I know that you still have special audience with God. I'm not trying to disrespect your position. I, I just... I thought you could have been here. Some people have tried to interpret verse 22 as like Martha nudging Jesus to resurrect Lazarus, but I want you to understand something, especially when you read the rest of the story. She has no clue that he can actually do that. 
Like Jesus is going to say, open the tomb later, and she's going to say, no, no, absolutely not. If she was expecting through that little comment for Jesus to bring Lazarus back to life, she wouldn't be objecting later on. All she's saying is, I know you have special audience with God. I'm not doubting you. I'm just saying that you could have been here and you could have stopped this. And it's a rather raw interchange. I appreciate it. It's respectful, but it also expresses remorse. And notice what Jesus says to her. It's very simple. Your brother will rise again. He'll rise again. It's going to be okay. And notice her response. I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I think some of us think that uh, the doctrine of the resurrection is merely a, uh, a Christian thing. Uh, it was a Jewish hope. We read about it today in Isaiah 26, verse 19. It says that they will be resurrected from the dead. Their bodies will come out of the dust. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, same thing. talks about them being resurrected from the dead. It wasn't emphasized. But the main contention between the two primary denominations of Judaism in that day was on this very topic. And the popular crowd was the Pharisees, and they were the ones who would defend the resurrection of the dead because it was in the Bible. In fact, it was one of the 18 benedictions where they would verbally say on a daily basis that they expected to see a resurrection from the dead. So when Jesus is saying this, Martha is hearing it as like, Yeah, I know, I know that there's going to be this end time period in which God the Father is going to make everything right, and I'm going to see Him again. I appreciate you saying that. But Jesus takes it a step further because He's saying, no, 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 you're not hearing me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, I don't know if you're catching the difference here, but I want to try to help you get it. He's saying, it isn't just about a resurrection event, it's about a resurrection individual. There is no, let me make it, say it this way. There is no event without the individual. There is no end-time resurrection program without this particular person. It isn't that she can expect to enjoy resurrection and reunion with Lazarus generally. It must specifically be enjoyed in the person of Jesus Christ who is Himself the resurrection and the life. And He makes it crystal clear. Nobody's enjoying that end-time resurrection without belief in Me. He says it twice. Look again at your text. Whoever believes in Me, anybody who believes in Me, though he die, though he die physically, yet shall he live again physically. And now notice how he mentions it again. Everyone who lives and believes in me, so even those who are living right now, they shall never die. What that means is in some sense they will not die at all. Jesus never promised his people that they would never experience physical death. But John is already defined his terms on what spiritual life is back in John chapter 5. This means acceptance with God. It means forgiveness of sins. It means an active, ongoing relationship with Him. Eternal life isn't just quantitative physical life. It is qualitative, internal, spiritual, and forever life. And he's saying... Either one of those, the hope of physical resurrection after physical death, or the hope of ongoing eternal life, ongoing blessing and relationship with God, both of those things come through belief in me, not just some mushy religious belief and some type of resurrection out there one day. You will not experience that resurrection apart from me. You get what I'm saying? The story may help. Uh, Monday night... We had the opportunity to have some church members with us, and they brought some friends who had visited our church so that we could go candy harvesting. I won't use the more pejorative term. <laughs> and it was fun. It, you know, our street over here just really like goes all in uh, on that, and the kids had a good time. And 
What was funny, though, about my company, about my guests, and I see that they are not here today so I can speak more freely about them, (laughs) is that uh, the church member is a pediatric ER doctor, and he brought with him a pediatric ER doctor. So there's a lot of intelligence in the room. (laughs) And what was funny is that the normal folks among us are having normal conversations. And the two pediatric ERs are talking to one another like business shop stuff. And, it, and what was really neat is like you get to hear their like professional humor. And uh, at one point, uh, the lady is telling the story about one of the doctors whose wife gave him a, a terribly difficult time over the fact that their child was hurt. And she was telling him, you need to take him to the ER. And he's like, No. I'm treating him right here. He's like, no, you need to take him to the ER. And he finally yells out, I am the ER. (laughs) Friends, what good is an ER without the doctor? Jesus is saying, what good is resurrection without me? I am the resurrection. I am the life. You're not going to enjoy this without belief in me. Martha, do you believe this? If you want that hope, and I know you say you've got it, you won't have it apart from believing in me, not just as some general spiritual being, some enlightened teacher, but as the resurrection and the life itself. And and check this. This is mind-blowing. You get it, but she can't. She can't really get that Jesus is actually the resurrection and the life. Because notice what she says. It's so tactful, but it's so incomplete. Her response, verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. And now notice what she says. Not that you are the resurrection and the life, but she fills in what she does know. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. (laughs) Hey, that's still high marks. I mean, at least she believes that he's the Messiah. At least she believes that he's in some sense of God, from God, the Son of God. He's the one who's coming into the world. But she's not really prepared to say, I confess and I believe that you are the resurrection and the life, because she doesn't even know what that means. She can't imagine an individual embodying the resurrection. Not yet. And so the story transitions. We've got resurrection truth given to Martha, and now we're going to have resurrection tenderness displayed to Mary. And this is good, friends. I love how John does this. He just kind of drops off that conversation, and he picks up in verse 28 and says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Notice that. (laughs) Like she's trying to give Mary a, a private audience with Jesus. I think it's because she knows Mary's emotion. And naturally calling him the teacher would have been a respectful term. In case anybody overheard, especially the Jews, if she would have said Messiah, that might have caused some trouble. And notice Mary. Um, her sister's trying to be tactful, but she's just all in. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. I mean, it's like she's supposed to be sitting there mourning in true Jewish womanly fashion, and all of a sudden she gets this whisper in her ear, and she's like all over herself to get out. (laughs) And it's confusing because I don't think you get it. Like here in our own culture, uh, we try to get funerals over and done with and just like try to stop thinking about death as quickly as possible. But uh, in Near Eastern cultures like that, funerals last a month. You have 30 days of prescribed mourning. You're not supposed to do anything fun. You're not supposed to wear any bright colors. That even happens today. But seven days of acute mourning. It's called shiva. You you sit and you cry and you even hire people. This is still done in Africa today. You hire people to mourn with you. To weep with you. So she's holding down this ceremony where there's everybody around and they're just grieving together and they're talking about how bad it is. And it is bad to her. 
But now all of a sudden, one little whisper from Martha and she's gone. (laughs) And so you think that she's going to get her private audience with Jesus. It says that she quickly went to him. And now notice this, maybe she outruns, you know, her company at this point because it focuses on Jesus in verse 30 saying, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Here he is on the outskirts of town. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. They were thinking like, oh, well, maybe she's just overcome with emotion, and now we need to go weep with her to the tomb. And it's kind of a funny sight. Because here she is trying to have a private audience with Jesus, and then here comes the entourage right behind her. But the focus is all on Jesus now in verse 32. It says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, Notice her response compared to Martha's. What does she do? She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. Here's the contrast, friends. You've got to pick up on it because you're like, oh, it sounds like she said the exact same thing as Mary. I mean, Martha. Well, indeed, you can tell that that was a family conversation around the house. Why didn't Jesus show up? Why did he turn down our invitation? But I want you to notice a couple things different. Martha just talks to Jesus plainly. Mary falls at his feet in emotion. Have you ever seen a woman fall on her face? Just not done. She is overcome. And in the original language, there is actually a small difference between what Mary says and Martha says. You can't see it in the English translation, and it's a nuance, but I think it actually conveys a little more emotion. The only difference between the two phrases, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, is the word my. It's basically repeated twice in Mary's statement. She's emphasizing, this was my brother. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, And notice this, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Can I pause from the story for a second just to do something somewhat intellectual, educational? It'll help. Those words, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, are almost shared by every translation on the planet. And what many people who actually know the Greek language much better than I do, have admitted, is that it seems that most translators are too cowardly to put down what's actually there. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson says that these translations that are popularly put here are exegetically irresponsible. (laughs) You say, well, what should it say? Well, what does that sound like to you? When you see deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, it just sounds like to you like, oh man, he's really emotional. This is setting up John eleven thirty five. 35. Well, indeed, he is emotional, but I would have you, if you're looking at the ESV, look at the little marginal note, and it says, deeply moved, five, at least in my Bible, you go down to the bottom, it says, indignant. He is ticked off. The word deeply moved in this particular context is often used to refer to the snorting of horses in battle. I mean, you're not used to seeing horses, but do you remember those old cartoons when like a bull would get angry and he sees the red and he starts to snort and there's an involuntary anger response. That's what this is talking about. You know what it's like. People's face turn red, like they start to shake a little bit. They are ticked off. That's what he wants you to see here, because the second word complements it. It says that he was deeply moved or indignant in his spirit and greatly troubled. Greatly troubled is the same word that was used earlier to talk about the bubbling of the waters at the pool of Siloam. Do you remember that? We even use this terminology in our own day. We talk about how are things going in your life. They're going pretty smooth right now, or we've hit a rough patch lately. (laughs) Any of you who have ever done whitewater rafting know the difference between things going smooth and a rough patch. Jesus is experiencing a rough patch. Like he is in turmoil in his spirit. He is angry about something. He is emotional indeed. And notice what he does in response. He says, where have you laid him? Now here's a question, friends. What's he angry about? What's he so ticked off about? 
Well, the text doesn't say. But let me tell you something that he's not ticked off about. You ready? He's not ticked off about them crying. It seems to me, in light of the actions that he will portray, that he is ticked off at death itself. The fact that people are experiencing this. It was seeing them all suffer in this way that moved him to the point of anger. And it's not a, it's not a flight response. It's a fight response. It's like, i got to do something. Where, where is he? Where'd you put him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And now it's not just manifest in anger. But now it's manifest in tears. It says Jesus wept. He cried. Wept is different than the other words. <laughs> the other words for weeping used earlier talk about more formal moaning and groaning, things that would be done rather ceremonially. This is just the raw emotion of Jesus on display. And you say, is he angry or is he sad? Well, let me ask you. Last time someone you love died, Were you angry or sad? I think it's both. Yes. Correct. Right answer. It's not an either or. It's a both and. I mean, as soon as he starts thinking about seeing this tomb and his friend like captured behind that, that he doesn't get to see the body anymore. I mean, the people are seeing him crying at this. He's making his way to the tomb. And the Jews said, at this time, not being used negatively, just the Jewish people in general who were there, see how he loved him. And notice the second group. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? He said, that's a rather disrespectful thing to ask. No, that's a fair question. That's a fair question. Like, why didn't he? Why didn't he? Like, he could do whatever. Why, Why couldn't he stop him from dying? In both scenes, both at the end of the Martha scene and the end of the Mary scene, there's confusion. Jesus has made a big claim, but he hasn't yet backed it up. They're rightfully confused, and so we move to the final scene. And this isn't Martha, it's not just Mary, it's the many. It includes both Martha, Mary, and the multitude. They'll be called out in this as well. All the people, they gather around, and notice verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen, oh, excuse me, verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, indignant again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, uh, I think that one of the best Bible commentators of all time, who is often only read for theology, but is actually very good at handling text, is John Calvin. Calvin's comments on this are especially helpful Because he actually paints, in his own word study of the word indignant, paints Jesus as one who is indignant and raring and like ready for action. Like if you've ever seen like a group of teenage boys about to play a football game and like yelling up and down, like ready to smash the other team, like that's kind of the picture that he's portraying here. Like somebody who's ready for a fight. Not merely, I'm going to cry this one off in the back room, but we're going to do something about this. And so you're seeing Jesus indignant, moving to the tomb, asking where they laid him. He's angry at death, and you notice that he's staring now at a cave and a large stone laying against it. And Jesus said with, again, an angry tone now, right? He's ticked off at this. Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, By this time there will be an odor, for he has been four days dead. The Egyptians may have embalmed people. The Jews did not. They would put spices around them. But at this point, I mean, this is a hot, humid climate. This is not going to be pretty. She's rightfully concerned. And notice what Jesus said to her. Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He said, I don't remember Jesus saying that. That was in effect what he said. I will shine. You need to believe. I am the resurrection. Do you believe? And so she lets it happen. Verse 41 says, they took away the stone, which would have been a pretty massive endeavor. Therefore, it took several men. These tombs would have been cold out of the side of a mountain or a hill. It's like Jesus' tomb. They take it away. 
And notice this, this is fascinating. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but I'm asking a question at this point. What in the world did he pray? (laughs) All he says out loud is, Father, thanks for hearing me. Thanks for listening to me. What did he ask him? Well, you know, this is one of those times where Jesus prays publicly and his intent was actually for other people to hear him. He even says it to everybody. Hey, everybody, I just prayed that out loud because I want you to understand my relationship with the Father. And so they're all wondering, well, what in the world did he pray? Well, you're about to find out. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. What a description. The dead guy was walking. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And as would have been done in that fashion, they take a long, wide sheet of linen and it would be twice as long as the body. And the way that they'd simply do it is they would run it under the back and they would run it over the person. And then they would loosely tie the ankles and the arms together so that like, the, the body parts, frankly, wouldn't decay and fall off. It, but it wasn't like, again, like a mummy type of situation. Some guys have tried to say, this is a miracle within a miracle that Lazarus could walk out of the tomb. <laughs> It's not that. He can hop, shuffle, get himself out of the tomb. And, and notice this, though. He's already alive by this point. He's like, death has been overcome. And all Jesus says is to them, unbind them and let them go. Release. Mic drop. That's it. If you're going to say, I am the ER, you better back it up. And if you're going to say, I'm the resurrection and the life, you better be able to back it up. So what's the difference between the Christian hope and all those Japanese sufferers talking into the wind phone? Objective, verifiable evidence of death overcome. They have zero assurance that anybody is listening on the other side of that line. And yet we have a historical narrative telling us that one has overcome death on behalf of another who believed in him. It is a triumph. And it is not a pipe dream. Friends, we need to understand and embrace that that what we have here is not just a hope so, but an actually happened. I think the story, the narrative in and of itself just leads us to three responses. The first of which is the most important. Here's what this this historical narrative requires of you and we're done. Ready? One. This is true. It's demanding that of you. The question posed to Martha is the same question that's posed to you. Do you believe? Are you counting on this? Are you looking to something else for resurrection life and right relationship with God? If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ alone, not the Lord Jesus plus a church, not the Lord Jesus plus all the good things you've tried to do in your life, not the Lord Jesus plus philanthropic effort, not the Lord Jesus plus uh, well-intentioned, like it is the Lord Jesus Christ alone that must be believed in to experience this kind of power and victory. Friends, this isn't, I want you to understand the Christian hope. It isn't just some consolation prize. I think most people think that here's what's going to happen. You know what Christianity is offering? It's offering like a consolation prize because what we really like is this life and it's a really cool life and I like everything that I can touch and taste and see and feel here. Uh, But I I know it all stinks when we die, but God's going to give us heaven one day and it's going to be really cool and that's going to be a consolation. Friends, that is not consolation. You know what's going to happen? 
Like the Christian hope isn't just like a consolation prize. It is a coming out of the tomb and enjoying everything that God intended you to enjoy from the very beginning. It is resurrection. There's this interesting line at the end of The Lord of the Rings where um, Samwise says uh, to Gandalf after all the events that had happened, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? (laughs) What a great question. Friends, you know all the sad things that we're experiencing. Is it really possible that it would come untrue? Is that real? Jesus says, it is for those who believe in me. The death thing that you were so scared of, the death thing that caused you so much devastation, it will be reversed, and the new life beyond it will be improved upon. Hey, I want to point out something. This might blow your mind a little bit. What we have here is better. What we have here in God's Word, here and now, right now, in this moment, is better than even what Lazarus himself experienced. Do you know that there's a difference between what happened with Lazarus and what will happen with us, and what happens with us is actually better than what happened to Lazarus? Here's a couple reasons why. First, Lazarus rose to mortality. Friends, if you were to look for Lazarus' body now, you may be able to find it somewhere, at least in a bone box. He eventually died again. He was raised to mortality, but Jesus and His resurrection was showing us that He was going to do something over and above and better than, and that is resurrection to immortality. Lazarus rose to a perishable body. Jesus rose again to an imperishable body. I mean, like, He does not suffer. He does not die. He is indestructible, and it is a real body. Lazarus' body, interestingly, was confined to certain physical realities. When you look at the resurrection body of Jesus, which is the prototype for that which we will experience, like he was able to walk through walls and yet still eat food. I don't know how that happens, but it sounds pretty cool to me. It's a superior existence. It's a better body. Here we are. Like holding on to this life like it's the only thing going on when something better awaits us. Just lean in to what Jesus has promised. Response one. This is true. Will you trust in it? Will you depend upon it? Response two. This is better. Don't just accept it with resignation. Embrace it with joy. The resurrected life promised in Jesus is better. His death satisfied God's wrath. His resurrection proved that we too will experience superior, physical, unending life forever. Not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus Christ Himself accomplished. And then let me give you one more just practical point and we're done. This is true. This is better. But I'd be remiss if I did not say this still hurts. This still hurts. God is moved, friends, at our suffering. Jesus weeps with those who suffer. Did He know what He was going to do? Of course, and yet He entered in fully into that moment. It's not like, I'm going to check my emotions here at the door because I know intellectually what's going to happen. Like He fully enters into our pain and He experienced it. He is not a high priest who is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He he is a perfect high priest. He is a sympathetic high priest. He knows the pain and the grief and the emptiness and the sorrow and the downright depression that you still feel even right now, and it's okay. He weeps too. my studies this week, I came across an old sermon from Timothy Keller. If you're not familiar with that name, he's the the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. 
The church has flourished in many ways through the years. He's been there a long time. What I found interesting about the sermon that I was listening to was it was the sermon that he preached the Sunday after 9-11. And it was John 11, 17-44. What an interesting text to preach. He echoes many of the things that I mentioned here, but one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating and encouraging and I wanted to share with you is he, in a kind of an autobiographical moment, talks about this recurring nightmare that he has, typically on a yearly, bi-yearly basis. And, and in this nightmare, he says his wife is very flattered. The nightmare is that, that she dies. Uh, and that he's trying to cope with the loss, and he doesn't know what to do next. And he says it's just terrible. And he tries to make it without her, and... It, Some of us must imagine that. Some of us live that. But then he makes an odd comment. I thought this was very interesting. He said, you know, I have this dream so often now that I've I've learned to actually take joy in it. He said, because on account of that dream, I experience a greater joy than I could ever have had without it. And that is the joy of waking up. Now he gets to hold her again. Like what he thought was, what was, was true is now untrue. Like he's, he's now in a superior form of reality and he gets to embrace his wife again and he says, it's, it's better to see the sad come untrue. And friends, this text points us to that great waking up. See it. See it with my kids. They come running in. And it's like once a week now. And they're they're scared to death. And one in particular, she just keeps saying, like, I keep dreaming that you, you that you died. You died. I don't know what to do. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of Keller again, and I'm like, that's right, we're gonna wake up. You're awake. It's okay. It's fine. Prince, we're living the nightmare now. But a greater reality is still to come. And Jesus' defeat of death here and His own triumph over death proves that that great waking up day is still to come. And so, I encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, Enjoy the hope that you have in Christ in both life and death. 